Bruce Fye is a well-known cardiologist and prolific medical historian. He was past president of the American College of Cardiology and past president of the American Association for the History of Medicine, in addition to holding many other positions. In short, he was an impressive doctor and is an accomplished human being. Just the kind of noble medical practitioner that Sir William Olsler, famed Canadian doctor and teacher, revered and wrote about. Phi was born in Meadville, Pennsylvania in 1946. His family moved frequently as his father pursued a career in banking. He's an only child and this all contributed to an attitude of self-reliance and the practice of solitary hobbies, including collecting stamps, coins, and baseball cards. He also developed a love and appreciation for, and an appreciation for old books, which kicked in at around the age of 14. And this is why we're here together to talk in Montreal. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Thank you very much, Nigel. It's a privilege, and I look forward to our conversation. So what happened at 14? Well, by the time I was 14, I had already collected things probably for half of my life. But it was the things that little boys collected in the mid-50s. I collected, as you mentioned earlier, stamps, coins, butterflies, comic books, baseball cards. And then... When I was 14, the thing that I think had a profound impact on me, as you mentioned, I was an only child. I only ever had one grandparent, a grandmother who was in western Pennsylvania. And at that point, uh, my family, my parents and I were living in eastern Pennsylvania. But because I only had one grandmother who was elderly and frail, who, by the way, lived for about another 35 years, <laughs> I would go back to visit her every summer. And at the same time, that was my father's mother. My mother's family has a farm in western Pennsylvania that's actually been in the family since a French family emigrated to the United States in, the, in 1840. And I, would have, I had cousins on the farm, and I always looked forward to spending some time with my cousins because my grandmother and I played canasta, but that was sort of the only activity I shared with her. Mm -hmm. But my cousins were close to my age, or my age, depending on which one. And of course, the excitement of being on a farm, and they, it was a dairy farm at that point. Uh, and we had a lot of fun. But the reason for this digression, and it relates to the beginnings of my bibliomania, my cousin, boy cousin, who was about six months older than me, wanted to get a cart to haul things behind a tractor. So they went to a country auction. And the way I remember it, and of course it's close to 60 years ago, but I remember a sort of walking into where this auction was occurring outside with a bunch of people in the country, and there were two boxes of books for sale. And my uncle lent me, I recall, $2.50, and I got these two boxes of books. You, you bid on them? I bid your, on them. Put your hand up? I, and... I somehow got them. I okay. wasn't a sophisticated auction goer, I can sure. assure you that. I'm certain. Well, you got them, though. That's I got them. <laughs> right. And that really started the fun of the hunt because one of the books was an odd volume of an 1884 book called 20 Years of Congress by James G. Blaine. And so it was a big, thick book. And 
obviously on the spine said volume one. So I thought, well, I know there are some old bookstores. I, I was raised near Philadelphia. And at that point, I went into Philadelphia looking for bookstores and asking the owners if they had volume two. I mean, that's sort of a naive question. Mm-hmm. And the great bookstore I somehow missed, Leary's bookstore, which I never got to. It was still open at that point. I didn't go there. But we lived across the Delaware River from Trenton, New Jersey. We lived in Yardley, which is literally four or five miles from Trenton. And there was a bookstore on the main street of Trenton, which I'd already gone to. And in fact, I'd bought my first old book there, I think almost certainly before this odd volume story comes into play. Because the main store, the main floor of this classic sort of late 19th century downtown store, you know, sort of narrow but very deep, high ceilings, the, the main floor off the street was all new books. The basement was paperbacks and textbooks, and they had one small sort of room that was very long and narrow, probably about three feet wide, books floor to ceiling, and those were the used books. Mm-hmm. And the first book I bought was uh, The Odyssey by Homer. And I what, bought what, it. What edition? It was, was a Harper's publication from 1861, and I wrote in it in ink my name, 1961. That was the first old book I bought, but it was in this bookstore. So I asked the, the owner, there were two brothers, two older brothers, who again, probably about my age at that point, but they seemed quite old. Uh, I asked the friendlier of the two brothers if, he'd ever, if he was aware of this 20 Years of Congress by James C. Blaine. And I'm embellishing this a little bit, but it was sort of like, well, come with me, little boy. Yeah, <laughs> and we got on an elevator and yeah. went up. And there was no up, in a sense, because all the activity was on the main floor with the new books in the basement, which was paperbacks and textbooks. But we went up. And the elevator doors opened, and there was this vast space with no, totally dark. I mean, it was daylight coming in from the windows on the one end of the building. But he pulled on these globe lights that used to be in schools and, and all these old buildings. And there were books, I would say the ceilings were at least 12 feet high, whatever a standard late 19th century building would have been. And he took me over, and we wandered around. He knew exactly where he was going. He didn't let the regular customers... No, it was closed. This why, this why, area was closed. Why didn't he want to sell it? I books? think that he and his brother had decided probably, I would guess a dozen or more years earlier, that they probably weren't selling enough books to bother keeping that open, or perhaps they were just doing well enough with the new books and the textbooks that they just didn't want to be bothered with it. And the store had been started by their father probably 75 or so years earlier, late 19th century. And I think probably their father was the one that was most interested in the used books. And they certainly would have maintained that. But as I recall, the the newest used books were sort of from the 40s. So I think it probably wound down after the war and then it, it was just forgotten about. Mm. So he took me over and he had three or four sets of this 1884 thing. And the price was $2.50 for a set. So... It wasn't so much that I completed the set, it really had everything to do with where I found it. And I'd found Nirvana, you know, this extraordinary space for somebody who's a collector and and had a beginning interest in old books. And suddenly I'm in this vast space and not only was there a second floor, there was a third floor. 
so two floors of old books. To yourself. To myself, quite literally, because I would guess this would have been probably when I was in the 10th grade, and until I graduated from high school, I am sure that about half of the Saturdays I spent several hours in there just browsing around. I only had an allowance. I didn't have a job at that point, mm -hmm. so I had a modest allowance. The books were cheap. On the other hand, you know, if you have a modest allowance and that's it, you sort of try to figure out what you want. So what formulated in your mind? Like, what did you think, okay, I've got to go after valuable books. I've got to try and find a deal? Was that the motivation, do you think? Like, I've got to find some really good stuff so I can then resell it somewhere else? That was did later. that way? That was later. I think, frankly, the first themes that I developed an interest in. It was the centenary of the American Civil War, 1861. That's the year I bought the first book. And I remember they had remainders on the first floor with the new books, Civil War books and such. The first two themes that I collected were African exploration, because they had a big section of African exploration upstairs, mm -hmm. and Civil War history, but it was more Abraham Lincoln. They had a lot of books about Lincoln. I don't remember that there was a vast selection of books about the Civil War. I'm sure there were. Uh, obviously, this, this two-volume set that I got had a, a good deal of Civil War in it. Mm -hmm. But I have to confess, very early on in our conversation, I was not a reader. I was not buying I'm glad these to books. Hear that. I was not buying these books to read, Nigel. <laughs> well, you know what? Uh, you don't have to feel at all guilty in my presence. <laughs> because I, I do read, but uh, but I know exactly what you're saying. Right. I want the object itself, yes. and the reading of it's not as important. Right. So I did at least <laughs> have some themes. You must have read a bit because you're a very accomplished doctor. Well, it happened. And that requires a lot of reading. It did. In fact, I, I guess what I would say is I I never was a reader for pleasure or enjoyment with the couple of exceptions and they tended to be when I was spending time with my grandmother. <laughs> I would take some classic uh, 19th century fiction. H. Ryder Haggard I'm thinking of and uh, Jules Verne, things of that sort, you know, classic science fiction from that era. And now I'm jumping ahead just to try to close this loop. But when I, obviously in college and in medical school and subsequently had to read all the time for purpose and for all my historical research and writing, I became an obsessive reader. I tried to read everything that might be remotely relevant, and I would go after the the vaguest sort of hint that something might be interesting and relevant. So I was reading all the time. But when I was done doing that for purpose, I wouldn't pick up a book and read. My wife Lois reads all the time. She's mm -hmm. constantly reading. So you're hunting. It's the hunting yes. that, uh, that motivates you and motivates all collectors. I think you're absolutely right. The fun of the hunt. I think any serious collector really enjoys the fun of the hunt. It's the challenge of trying to find something that others have overlooked yeah. or might not appreciate, and you never know where that's going to be. But that does require research. Yes. And that's what was so neat, I think, before the internet came around, is that your hard work researching these books paid off because no one else knew how valuable these books really were. Not nobody, but only the no. people had done the research that you'd done. No, you're absolutely right. The internet, of course, has turned all of that on its head because it's democratized all knowledge in a sense. It's cheapened it in a way. Well, it's, it's devalued it. It's yes, devalued. I think it's the same, yeah. same concept, right? Yeah, it's undermined people who really 
do take the effort to learn right. about books as opposed to just see what the price is. Right. But, but you're quite right. I think the thing that was very helpful for me, the reason I got interested in the history of medicine, in fact, was an outgrowth of the books. And in fact, I've told friends and occasionally in other contexts, uh, I've said that I'm lucky I became addicted to books because if I'd been addicted to drugs, something like heroin in particular, I would have died about the same time as Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix, and Jim Morrison. Well, because the addiction is such a strong, overwhelming yes. thing, right? Yes, yeah. but I was able to sublimate my addiction into a passion for mm. historical research and writing. Right. And then, to your point, I was studying about the history of medicine and learning some things about who was important, what happened over different periods of time, what discoveries were made, and what general time periods and who contributed to them. And so I gradually gained more knowledge and understanding. And then I would go after books, or not, not knowing where they would be, but again to your point, yeah. if I would see a wall full of medical books, it wouldn't just be a blur. I'd be able to sort of say, aha, okay, there's one. And then. So what, did, what made you go, uh huh? Well, probably awareness that the author was significant. And, and I'm uh, jumping ahead a bit, but I did become a bookseller, and that was, uh, you know, I think, again, there's an analogy to probably drug dealing, you know, that yeah. it's, it's a way to sort of pay for your habit, it's a way to yeah. gain access to the best stuff, and uh, luckily, and I survived and thrived. And that, frankly, was a terrific source of information in terms of knowing more about the history of medicine. Because if I'd only collected my clinical subject, cardiology, yeah. I, I might know a lot about that field, but I know a tremendous amount of trivia about all sorts of medical fields because I would buy those books in the hope of finding somebody who wanted them at a price higher than I paid for it. You know? yeah. okay. But as you say, now it's changed. I don't want to get too far ahead of the story no, no, that you'd like no. to weave, but it, it's a whole different universe in it terms is. of finding books in the we can get to that. Right. Yeah. So how did it go with the Civil War books then and the history of Africa? What, where did that end up? Well, I still have the Africa collection. I kept adding to it. What really happened, though, when I was a pre-medical student at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore, there was a pizza restaurant about five or six blocks from the campus that two or three friends and I used to go to, not late at night because I never was really a late-night person, but probably at 10 o'clock or so. And across the street from this, there was a used bookstore. And a guy who at that point, although he seemed older than me, really was about my age, he had just bought it and took it over. And I got to know him, and he was largely a self-taught person, but extremely bright, yeah. extremely bright, and had a powerful influence on me. I mean, sort of a pragmatic piece of advice. He said, no, if you're gonna go into medicine, you should collect medical books. That was one yeah. of the, uh, Duh. <laughs> you, well, you hear that, I hear that right. quite often right. these days when I interview booksellers and ask about ideas for collecting is to look at your profession. Sure, because again, you gain knowledge through that work. You have that, fun, exactly, yeah. And they're, they sort of cross-pollinate, yeah. they, they really reinforce one another. So he encouraged me to do that, and in fact, this was a transition point from me becoming purely a collector to becoming a, a hybrid book collector, bookseller, because I'd accumulated a lot of non-medical books. But I'm a student, I really had no income. So what I started to do then was to trade 
my non-medical books for medical books. Yeah. And there were, there were four or five bookstores in Baltimore that I could do that with. And I used to, again, buy books from one bookseller that I thought probably another bookseller in the town might value more highly. And so that was sort of that kind of, of currency that I could trade, trade the books for medical books. I can think of uh, two, they weren't around when you were collecting, early on anyway, but uh, Fran Dreco's, uh, Kelmscott. Oh, sure. And oh, they were. Royal, uh, Royal Books. Right well, next door, I think they are. And that's more recent, but, but I'm fully aware of Kelmscott. Now, essentially, all of the bookstores when I was in Baltimore are gone. They've all, they've all yeah, turned over, completely turned over. Sad, yeah. But there used to be a Harris Auction Galleries had auctions of books, and they were on Howard Street. That was a big book, book thing. Okay. And there was a little old man on Howard Street that had books, and it took probably two years of buying books from him on the main floor until he took me down to the basement and that was another one of these oh my gosh experiences where no one got down to the basement but he had some fascinating medical books he had a number of hundreds and hundreds of off prints of medical themes and so what uh, is it with you and these booksellers letting you into the good stuff well i don't know i think it was (laughs) luck it took a long time for this one man the other one i think perhaps it was just finding a young guy who was interested in an old book and he knew he had it. And he took a liking to me, although his other brother, the more serious brother, it's funny, I remember one time I'd probably been in the store a dozen different Saturdays over several months, and the older brother sort of fell upon me upstairs, and it wasn't like I sort of snuck in. I mean, I'm sure he knew I was up there. But I forget exactly what he said, but it was something like, you know, what are you doing this for, you know? you you know, why don't you just buy something and leave? But the other brother was very tolerant. And the other, the staff on the first floor, when I come down with, you know, 10 or so things for 10 or $12, you know, they were happy to see me. So it was very, it was a lot of fun. Okay, so you, you, uh, you decided to enter, uh, well, what, you studied something before going to medical school, right? Was it science? Well, or? not, it was pre-med. I mean, I was oh, a okay. cookie-cutter pre-med. It was a pre-med major, okay. and uh, then straight into medical school, so four years, four years. And during medical school at Johns Hopkins, there was a required course in the history of medicine. And actually, the, the man who chaired the Department of the History of Medicine was a former dean of McGill Medical College, Lloyd Stevenson who'd written a biography of Frederick Banting and uh, was not a very dynamic person. But in fact, when I went on subsequently to get my master's degree in the history of medicine from the institute, which he still chaired, that worked to my advantage because I've been, and maybe this goes back in part to being an only child and spontaneity and self-starter, what have you. But the institute at that point at Hopkins was not a real lively place. Uh, there was a seminar every week where all sorts of interesting people from the Baltimore and Washington area that shared a passion or an interest in history of medicine would get together. And those were very, very lively discussions. Mm-hmm. And then there was a survey course, but the rest of the time it was, it was fairly quiet. But I was able then to start to do some historical research. And once again, I'm sure, I, in fact, I, I must digress. So I've already confessed that I wasn't a reader because although you understand this dynamic, many people who see somebody that has thousands of books assume, oh, you must be a voracious reader. Well, Mm -hmm. no, I've already debunked that myth. (laughs) But the second thing is because I did become passionate about historical research and have written a lot, 
people assume, oh, you must have been a history major in college. No, I had nine credits of history. The six-credit six required survey of Western civilization in 1964-65. And then one course which, which demonstrates the era in which I was in college. This was during the Civil Rights Movement in the United States. So when I was in 1967, and again the, the term reflects the era, Johns Hopkins started a course called The History of the Negro in America. So that was a three-credit course. That was my history. Six credits of introductory to rest of civilization in this contemporary history course, which I found very interesting. But that was it. So when I got to medical school, my interest in having an elective quarter in the history of medicine uh, really was because I'd been attracted to it more so than to biomedical research. Mm-hmm. And part of that was when I was an undergraduate I worked in a research laboratory uh, for an elective, and it was on porphyrin research. And the professor really never gave me readings, never gave me meaningful feedback, Mm -hmm. but I got an A. And so if you're a pre-med at Johns Hopkins and you get an A in organic chemistry laboratory, you're going to do it again, even if you don't know what you're doing. So I did it again, but I also said to myself, and I, I, I really did say this to myself, if there's any way I can avoid being plugged in to somebody's research project that I don't understand and that I'm simply a transient, that when I'm gone they're going to plug somebody else into it, I'd like to avoid that. And so that was part of why I was attracted to the history of medicine, because there's so many themes that nobody has even touched, let alone thoroughly researched, mm-hmm. that it struck me this is great for somebody that has an interest, a niche sort of interest, and then you can dig down into the historical literature, which, again, interdigitates with a passion for old things and literature, especially when it was in that era, it was the printed literature, way pre-internet, nobody had ever conceived of such a thing. So it was great fun. You'd go burrowing around in the library and looking through books on the stacks and finding things that were great fun to, to look at, but more importantly at that point, great fun to skim through and read looking for things that might inform a research project. So what happened then? You like when you were taking these classes, did you sort of sort of jot down the names of the because that that's we're here in Montreal and there's a, a William Olsler Society right. meeting taking place and he's famous for having written all sorts of biographical sketches of right. important doctors. Right. So is that sort of how this you worked? You sort of said, okay, here's a list of all these important doctors. Now I wonder if they wrote any books, and I'm going to go after their books. Well, it's interesting you ask that question, because there is a sort of a, a reference source that became the Bible of people interested in the history of medicine, booksellers, book collectors, librarians. It's written by, it was started by Fielding Garrison, who was an American in the late 19th, early 20th century, who was the librarian of what became the, it was the Surgeon General's Library, it became the National Library of Medicine. And then later on, uh, sort of during World War II, Leslie Morton, who was an English librarian, took it over. And it was, then the third edition came out in the, I think, 1961, the fourth in like the early 70s, and the fifth, literally in like the early 90s, before again the internet had exploded. 
But this was a, eventually about a two and a half inch thick book with about 6,000 entries. Dealing so it's like a who's who. Who's who, but it was honestly, it was based on their publications. So it wasn't an encyclopedia of names. It was basically a, an annotated bibliography. Most of the annotations were very brief, but it would give, for example, it would have a subject, for example, diabetes. And so it would have what were considered by these two individuals that chose the, the titles, the classic publications in the history of diabetes. Now, most of those items from the mid-19th century on would have been journal publications. And that's what led me, we'll come, sure come back to this, to my interest in off-prints, which are publications of journal articles in separate form. But books and articles in the history of medicine across the board so I would study that. I became familiar with the names of people who were Garrison Morton authors. Sure. And that, again, suddenly made that person's books more collectible. So for a book scout, a book hunter. Yeah, yeah. that's okay, the Bible. That's right. So if you see that person's name on the shelf of 100 books, you'd pull it out and you'd look. And if the person said, if the, if the pencil inscription said, Garrison Morton author, $50.00. You'd say, well, um, good, this man knows about Garrison Morton. He knows what it's worth or maybe thinks it's worth more than it honestly is, but I won't buy that. But if I go to another bookstore in the next town and pull it off the shelf and it's a $12.50, I'd say, bingo. He doesn't know. He doesn't know. Yeah, yeah. So you talk about going to the next town. Uh, did you travel all over the place? Like, how'd you get your books? Right. Well, it depended on what stage of my life. And another transition point was when I completed medical school, because in medical school, we lived in Baltimore. I had a car. My wife, Lois, was working as a nurse. But I would drive around the bookstores on Saturdays, and I could buy books and trade books. Uh, at that point, I wasn't selling them. I was just trading them. Mm -hmm. Then I matched for my internship in Manhattan at New York Hospital, which is the second oldest hospital in the United States. It's now conflated, and the hospitals are merged with Columbia, so it's New York Presbyterian, and it's hard to know which physical structure they're talking about. But in any event, I was then working extremely hard. This time, as the internships were literally every other night for eight months of the year. Mm. So I had every other Saturday off. We were in Manhattan, and we lived about five or so blocks from the Lexington Avenue subway line, which went down to... Uh, Fourth Avenue, Fourth Avenue Book Square, Bookstore. Mm -hmm. So it was Union Square. You get off at that stop. And at that point, just below Union Square, there probably would have been about 15 used bookstores. The huge one was Strand, uh, but and which is still there. All the others the are only gone. One. It's the yeah. only one left. Yeah. Argosy was there. Uh, I went to Argosy. They're still there. Closer. They're okay. like 59th Street. I'm quite sure. Mm -hmm. But so I would spend a lot of Saturdays going to those bookstores. But then a bookseller in California who again is my age, Jeremy Norman, published his first catalog in 1971. So I started as intern in 1972 and his prices struck me as, whoa. Now in retrospect, what? high. 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 Yeah. They okay. seem, but his catalogs were very sophisticated. The research that went into his description is very, very first rate. No mm -hmm. question about it. And he's doing everyone a favor. Yes. 
in many respects. I mean, it was it was like again sticker shock for someone who's used to finding books inexpensively. Yes, but on the other hand, you've got those, a lot of those books. You think, hey, my collection's worth a little bit more than I thought, perhaps. Well, once again, you you know your insights are obviously right on target. Not only that, but I thought to myself, well, you know what? He's asking thirty-five dollars for this. I paid five dollars for it in Connecticut. I'll offer to sell it to him for ten, and he'll be thrilled, and I'm happy. So I started then creating little lists of books to send to booksellers selling medical books, and then that just over many years just grew into more of a mail order business, always completely, completely separated, just like the watertight compartments of the Titanic. But even better because they yeah. mine worked. Yeah that my medical life was always completely separated from my medical book business life. Uh, yes and no. I mean, I mean in terms of, well, I, mean, I know, I, I mean tr- structurally, because I was always, uh, I was employed by a group practice in Marshfield, Wisconsin. So there, my daytime was their time. My nights oh, were course, my own, course, you know, yeah. and that's what I mean. Yeah. So in the sure. way, in the extremely unusual circumstance where after the business had existed as a mail order business for two decades, is someone would happen to call me during the daytime. The person who would answer the phone would say, well, you know, no. And actually, we did have a secretary that, that ran the book business. So that was because always it was completely isolated. Well. well, it was going well enough to afford a secretary in a small town in central Wisconsin. But <laughs> okay. the bibliomania was pretty serious. So, I mean, for me, it was, it was great fun. And you wondered about going to get the book. So I'll, I'll digress into that. So... My wife's parents and my parents died very young. All four of our parents died in, in literally a four-year time span <clears throat> when they were young. Boom, that, boom, boom, boom. must have been awful. Very difficult. With some kind of disease? Yeah. Disease, all of them? Diseases? Both of my wife's parents had brain tumors, which is extremely rare. My father died of acute leukemia, having never been in the hospital in his life. And my, my mother got acute hepatitis and died. So they all died, although they had it didn't seem possible, you know, four years before. But the one way I rationalized that this, the only way I could rationalize this was I got to know my kids better because they didn't have grandparents to visit. At that point, we lived in Wisconsin. One set of grandparents were in Pennsylvania. The others were in Arizona. So it would have obviously meant a lot of time juggling them to see their grandparents. They've missed that, of course. Obviously, that's a huge loss. You've got a couple of daughters? Two daughters, yes. Me too. (laughs) <laughs> They're good. <laughs> They're easy. <laughs> yeah, I kept hearing these horror stories before they turned teenagers. They've been wonderful. Yeah, they've but been anyway, terrific. Just lucky. And I wasn't into sports, so I didn't have to throw a ball to a boy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, but we would go on these book hunting trips. With the, with oh the yes. Oh yeah. You dragged. They, oh they yeah. actually oh, accepted they, this. They grew up in the back seat of the cars going on book hunting trips. Absolutely. We would and go they back didn't to, object. No, I mean, I think maybe it's because they knew nothing different. Lois would go with me, and she knew I was a bibliomaniac. Our first date was in 1963. So, I mean, I already probably, when I first met her, I probably had a thousand books, which was not a common scenario. She knew what she was getting into. She knew what she was getting into. But so, uh, our book hunting trips initially would be confined to the United States, where Lois's sister lived in uh, outside of Washington, D.C. So we would go there often for Thanksgiving, and then we'd drive back to, to Wisconsin. But we would never take just the freeways. We would go to what I thought of, and many people thought of, as the good book towns yeah. that had good used bookstores. Yeah. But another really funny story, and this is before we had children, this was one of the probably two best finds of my life. This was on a, a Sunday. We were driving through New England. We'd gone up to Connecticut and 
through part of New York to buy books. And we had a 1969 Camaro. And on a Sunday, I stopped at a payphone and looked at the Yellow Pages, which the younger listeners will say, what's that? <laughs> but they used to be obviously payphone? everywhere, <laughs> payphone, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I stopped, and there's a payphone, probably in a, on a gas station lot, looked books used and rare in the Yellow Pages, and there was a place probably five miles or so from where we were. I figured, what do I have to lose? I'll put in my dime, and I think it was probably on a dime at that point. A man answered the phone, and I said, you know, uh, do you have any medical books? He said, no, not really. I said, well, how many old books do you have? He said, I don't know, 20 or 30,000. I said, are you open? He said, well, I, yeah, you can come over. So, okay. So we drove the five or so miles, and the man opened the door. The door. His name was Charlie Vincent, and the bookstore was called Old Mystic Books in Old Mystic, Connecticut. And so we went in, I went in, I, I, Lois may have stayed in the car, I'm not sure. But in any event, I, she probably stayed in the I car think a she, long time. I think that she stayed crazy. in the car. At that point, she was doing embroidery. So I went in, and he said, you know, after we hung up, I was thinking I bought this library of this neuropsychologist, neurophysiologist from Yale. And, you know, I've got those back in this back room. Come look at those. Whoa. Because there was a book by Charles Sherrington, a very, very famous, won the Nobel Prize, Sherrington for Integrative Action of the Nervous System, extremely uh, knowledgeable and creative man, first edition of his book. And the deal with this was all the books were a certain price. It wasn't, they were, they hadn't been priced. So it was sort of the more you buy, the less the average price would be. Well, it wasn't hard for me to buy a lot of books because it was a tremendous, tremendous library. What year was that? That would have been 1970, probably the spring of 75 is my guess. It could have, yeah, it would have had to have been because we wouldn't have had a car until then. The first two years in New York, we didn't bring a car. So it would have been the, the spring of 1975, and I bought so many books that the Camaros are fairly low to begin with. And there were so many books, Lois had to have her feet up on a box in the front. And we went over some bump or a pothole in the town and it dragged the muffler off. So we're rumbling through a Connecticut township on a Sunday, <laughs> overloaded with books. But that was, that was the book hunting life. You know, that was the fun of the hunt. And that's what keeps you going. When somebody says, no, I don't have any medical books. Another funny story. And it might have been on the same trip before we bought all those books. But this was after I'd started to put ads in a weekly journal about the size of the old-fashioned TV guides, you know, a small thing that came out once a week called the A.B. Bookman's Weekly. Mm -hmm. yeah. And book dealers would buy this, and they would advertise either books they wanted because they had customers for them or books that they wanted to sell. So I started to put little block ads in every issue, mm -hmm. you know, wanted old medical books. W. Bruce Fye, you know, I, I never used the MD. I thought that was irrelevant. I mean, I, I consider that relevant. That's my medical identity, and that's important for that life, but it's not relevant for my bookish life. So I'm going to get this backwards. It was either New Hampshire or Vermont, but you'll see why it's, it doesn't really matter. But we were in one state or the other, down in this little town, and our older daughter can spot birds off peripheral vision. So, oh, there's a hawk. And it's sort of at 180 degrees. So how did she see that? Well, I could see the word books like that. Yeah, it's like a heart stopper. Yes. It? It's like a, 
Yeah. It's certainly a brake stopper in this kind, in this time. So I'm driving by, books for sale in the front yard, just sort of like a for sale, house for sale sign, just sure. books for sale. Yeah. So we pulled over, I went up to the door, and this would have been 1975, the same time, so I would have been basically 29 years old. And I went up to the door, and I asked, knocked on the door, a woman came, and she, she answered the door. I said, you know, do you have any old medical books? She says, well... You know, about the books, it's a, it's a sad story. We're in the midst of moving the books, again, either from Vermont to New Hampshire, New Hampshire, Vermont. She said, but we've had a fire over there, and we've lost a lot of the books. But in any case, the medical books we sell to Mr. Fye in New York. I said, that's me. And she said, I thought you'd be a little old man with a cane. And at that point, I'm 29. But there again, before the Internet and Google and Google Images, everybody's sort of invisible. But that was one of the funny things where... That's a nice coincidence. Advertising paid off. Yeah. So I became known in this relatively small universe of people that bought and sold medical books. And that was, again, it, it fostered my passion for historical research and writing. And it did become a serious business. It was an avocation, obviously. It was certainly not significant to the degree my medical life was mm. but I was very serious about it I enjoyed I enjoyed finding the books I enjoyed finding new homes for the books yeah well it's, there's also this sort of added incentive right it is to some extent about making a profit yes and, and that that's exciting when you right. make a profit right and then honestly it also was a way to justify travels that we otherwise wouldn't have done I still have so the did itinerary. Did you get to write that off? Uh, yes the portion that was related to the book travel yes yeah, yeah. in fact uh I have itineraries that we saved. We went to, to England three times, three separate times with our girls, mm -hmm. book hunting. And the itineraries, this was, again, pre-internet. Mm -hmm. I have these typewritten descriptions of how to get from bookstore to bookstore to bookstore. And one in 1995, this is, it's something like 25 pages long because I've listed every bookstore I wanted to visit, their hours, their telephone number, and then had to pre-plan where we were going to stay. You didn't buy the, the drift list of British bookstores. Well, I had all the directories. There were Shepherd's directories, Shepherds, all yeah. the different directories. Drift was pretty funny. I don't though. remember that one. I, I think it's, that. It's, it's known because he craps all over lousy bookstores. Interesting, books interesting. It's a fun read. Interesting. Anyway, I'm not anyway. aware of that. Yeah. I should look it up. I'll let you, I'll give well, you I used idea. to have all the directories because I'd search them like crazy to try yeah. and then go on maps, you know, try to figure out a logical progression. But so once again, this one the trip that I remember this great huge itinerary for was thirty days. So I'd save up my entire vacation from this medical practice, this yeah. group practice, yeah. and the girls were terrific. Did you give them stuff to look for? Oh yeah, well yeah. they look for their own things, and yeah. the the one regret I have, Nigel, and Lois feels the same way, is we should have taken photographs of cats in bookstores. I take. Photographs of bookstores. I have about five thousand. Oh my goodness! Photographs of bookstores. Terrific. And among those are some cats, but no, it wasn't a focus. Well, I just I wish we'd done any it of that. Yeah. Because we didn't take pictures of the bookstores, didn't take pictures of the booksellers, yeah. didn't take pictures of the interesting displays that they might have. Some of them pretty ramshackle, you know. I mean, really amazing, yeah. amazing situations. But the girls were terrific. They mm -hmm. would go along, and every once in a while, if there'd be some sort of slight dissatisfaction with how many more bookstores do we have to go to today, I'd say, well, you know what? You wouldn't be seeing these sites with your mom in London 
if we weren't doing all this other stuff and I'm going off hunting for books. You know, you're doing fun stuff and we'd get together for meals. But obviously when we're going to these small towns, we're together the whole time. Yeah. But so it was, it was a lot of fun. We took vacations that we wouldn't have done those things. And what's the attraction? What's the book hunting? Yeah. It's, it's the it's fun so, of the hunt. It's the fun of the hunt. And also, you know, you're so lucky to have uh, a, a family that's on board. Absolutely. Because, because that's, un, that's unusual. Well, I feel very, very fortunate in that regard because some of the people who could become bibliomaniacs, who really want to be bibliomaniacs, don't have the good fortune I've had. In other words, their spouse, their significant other, and most of the collectors of my generation were men, so their wives that's in changing. that era. It's for, changing. For good, it is yeah. changing for the good, absolutely. But they didn't, they didn't have a tolerant spouse, so they have to either sneak things in or buy only a tiny fraction of what they might really want to have and it inhibits their collection and and that has implications because I think collections historically have gone to institutions and have led to special collections or enriched special collections so I do think that this whole progression just as we talked earlier sort of the book scout being more knowledgeable than we didn't talk about this specifically but the the food chain was you know the general book scout would go to these old bookstores or country auctions or garage sales and find things that he thought he could sell to the local bookstore. And then maybe a book scout that would go into a larger regional route would visit the general bookstore with more sophisticated knowledge and be able to pluck from that general bookstore the stock that a specialist bookseller might be interested in. And then the specialist bookseller would have a network of either other specialist dealers that have a higher price clientele or library contacts perhaps so I mean the whole food chain but now as you alluded to early in the conversation the internet has leveled all of that because sort of all that price information however unrealistic some of the prices might be either high or low mm-hmm. it's sort of all out there for everyone to see and it's disruptive because the other thing that's lost is the description of the significance of the book because oftentimes you'll go on the internet now, and, and sadly, it, some of these massive companies, not named, but you know, you go on and they'll be talking about a book from the 19th century, say, may not have CD, you know, may not include CD. And it's like this generic description, may have library markings, may be this, may be that. But there'll be nothing about the significance of the author or the significance of the book. And of course, that's what I enjoyed doing, was trying to figure out what makes it interesting. The story of the book. Exactly. Well, yet pretty well what you have to do now is just dial up the most expensive version of right. That. Decreasing where, price, hope for the best, right? Go, yeah, go to the most expensive version, and that's where these wonderful antiquarian booksellers who who love the, the trade right. and contribute to the trade. That's where you'll find the descriptions that you're after. Exactly. Right? That's exactly right. So is it all gloom and doom now then? Or? No, I think it's changed dramatically. Where, where can we have our fun now? Well, you know, it brings up another topic. It brings up the topic of collectors in general and collecting in general. But we'll stick with books because obviously that's the theme. Mm. But the good news is if you go back 20 years, there was so much gloom and doom about the printed book in general. The notion that printed books probably will be gone in a generation. Mm -hmm. Well, we know that's not true. Mm -hmm. I mean, the number of printed books that are being published is, again, inconceivable. I've just come from the History of Medicine meetings, uh, the American Association of History of Medicine, 
and they have a display of publishers that are publishing new books in the history of medicine, and there's a tremendous amount of activity in that field. Mm -hmm. Here at the American Oster Society, uh, we're going to be, of course, sadly, because of the fire at the Oster Library, we won't be able to to see the the library as it should be. Yeah, but you'll still be able to see the books. Yes. But basically, uh, I think that bookstores are coming back, used bookstores, certainly declined and part numbers of, did anyway numbers yeah. declined dramatically and part of that is if you know if there isn't someone to take over the business it's not a business where you can make much money no, so it's, it's it. as exactly so as rents have gone up as expenses in general mailing expenses i mean i used to ship hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of books back from england and now i would think twice probably about two-thirds of those books gee whiz is the book worth it to ship it back, or if it needs some repairs or, or rebinding, mm-hmm. that's gotten so expensive. So it's, it's, it's a problem in that sense. I think I am very concerned about the future of libraries and the future of collecting because of the speed of light transition that we've gone from the printed book 25 years ago and printed journals to the age of PDFs and the internet and electronic media and who needs books. And that's extremely naive. I mean, because first of all, it's terrific that that many books now are being digitized and you can get the whole text online and it's even searchable in many instances, despite the fact that it's a printed page. They, you know, people far smarter than I have figured out how to do that. But they assume that the technologies that are being used to digitize and store these today are going to be useful and adaptable and findable 50 years, forget 500 years from now. Mm-hmm. And you know, you and I have lived through the transition from microfilm, microfiche, floppy disks that are five and a quarter or whatever they were, to floppy disks that were small, to, to flash drives, to, you know, I've forgotten the disks that, that I've skipped over, but you know, it's just incredible how quickly these technologies change. Mm-hmm. And the one thing that hasn't changed is the printed book. So except for the period where acid paper, acidic paper, and then they disintegrate, or if they're in bad climatic conditions. But it, I do worry because I think librarians now, the old school librarians, are being replaced by information technology experts. Yeah. Yeah. And that's terrific, but the deans, that used to value printed books are being replaced by deans that are all about finances and all about future. But doesn't that mean that, I mean, if they don't care so much for the printed book, then if they're going to, well, if they're going to deaccession them, it just means all these books will go on the market for us collectors? Yes, or... In the best case scenario, that's true, but in the worst case scenario, they go into dumpsters. Yeah, right. And there's no filter. Well, plus the other thing is a lot of the library books are got stamps on them. It's right. not collectible anyway. One of the more ironic things, I remember I bought books from dozens of libraries over the decades, but one of the more interesting ones was a library in Detroit. They had been given lots of books, and these weren't valuable books. These were 20th and most of the books I handled, frankly, weren't really valuable. They were 20th century books, many of them. History of medicine titles, I was very interested in selling secondary sources, histories and biographies. But in this one particular place, these were books that had no library markings whatsoever, but a big discard stamp from their institution. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, well, why did you do that? Yeah. Because it wasn't... They ever, didn't have to. They didn't have to, because yeah. it wasn't identified as a book from their collection. Yeah. It wasn't ever really accessioned into their collection. <laughs> but I do, I do worry that uh, it's expedient 
to say, well, and that this, I mean, Better World Books, they're out there, yeah. and I don't exactly understand their model, but I think it's basically they pull up to institutions uh, uh, with tractor trailers and say, you know, we'll take your books away. Whether they pay them anything or not, I'm not entirely sure. Yeah. Uh, and they started out selling their books very inexpensively, but then they figured out also have somebody spend the time looking title yeah. most expensive and then they now have a rare book department but I mean at least those books are not being thrown away so that's your concern is that the, the books will just be destroyed so I think so yeah. yeah yeah I mean there are there are horrific stories uh, of this you know mm -hmm. institutional collections that because somebody new has come in that doesn't see the value yeah. and person overseeing the institution doesn't particularly care about the library per se. They're much more interested in well, the interested sexy, in the, futuristic things that, that they're interested in the content. That, I mean, certainly they want to they want to make sure the content is electronically available before they dump the book. Well, that's that's the rationale, or that's the that's the hope yeah. is that they are convinced that the content's available, and they are also aware that space staff is cost. Upkeep is cost, cleaning, lights, all of that stuff is cost. Mm. So if you can shrink the physical collections and rationalize, well, you know, you can get it all online, it's, it's sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy. But fortunately, there are enough informed institutions and still librarians, but I have to hope going forward that, you know, events, things such as you're doing, these, these sorts of things where we can inform the public, a mm. larger audience, that appreciate these unique treasures. They don't have to be a Gutenberg Bible or a $4,000 book or a $400 book, mm. but a thematic collection of printed materials. Mm. I can't begin to tell you how much I valued for my own bibliomania. I had large collections, large runs of 19th century medical journals. Well, your collection was about was it, it was more than 25,000. It was peaked out at around 35,000. And I would guess that that probably about, at the peak, probably about half of it was the book business and about half of it was my collection. I'd say my collection probably peaked out at around 20,000 books, something like that. Well, I guess, actually, come to think of it, probably more than that. But in any event, I used to have these huge runs of journals. Mm. And I used to like reading the editorials and reading letters to the editor. I'm now thinking about 19th century mm. things, trying mm. to understand the development of medical education, the, the development of research as we think of it today in, in medicine. I don't mean the technologies, but the interest in research, the questions and how they go about answering them. And, so, and the debates, the debates about vivisection mm. and reading letters to the editor and editorials. I mean that's where the fun stuff is. That's where the really the where people tell you what they think. And it's good, not the and the good writing too. Absolutely, oh. it's the sound bites you're yeah. looking for. Yeah. It's the insights that you want to be able to then pass on to somebody who's curious about the history of research or the history of medical education. But to, to play devil's advocate, that's all online. Well, that's all you know online. what? You oh, most. Of I it. will challenge you on most, that. Most oh. of it. Well, that's the argument that these new librarians might make, is that, you know, this is all being scanned. But documented. here, they are being scanned, and the titles of the articles are being scanned. But, of course, the letters to the editor, you can scan the letter, it's in there, but how do you know what's in it? How do you know what the theme is? How do you know what the person's saying? Because that's not indexed in... You oh, know. In other words, the physical too. thing, sure, but it's not, you can sit down and look at a 15-year at a run of the New England Journal of Medicine or in the 19th century called the Boston Medical and Surgical Journal. And you could just leaf through it. 
each right. each thing. Yeah. Of course, yes, you could look in the index, and it might cite letters, but it wouldn't really give you the insight. It wouldn't, it wouldn't give you the topic of the no, letter. No, yeah. and it surely yeah. wouldn't give you the tone of the writer. So yeah. that way, flipping through pages, and of course, most people didn't have access to that anyway. I mean, mm -hmm. they could if they'd gone to the stacks here at McGill or at Hopkins. Uh, but now many institutions, and there used to be a state medical society in the United States, every state medical society had a big library. Now they're almost all gone. They're almost all gone. And I mean, again, I bought from them 40 years ago, 30 years ago, 20 years ago. By that time, they were pretty much all gone. And understandably so, because it used to be that, that people would go to those libraries for those books yeah. if they weren't at an academic institution. Well, the other thing you say is that the, the just the mere fact that you were surrounded by these books and, and journals gave you a real leg up on everyone else who was writing about certain things. Right? Absolutely. And yeah. I mean, I people sort of say, gee, how did you write all that stuff? Mm -hmm. Well, I tease because we, went, we grew up around Philadelphia, lived in Baltimore for 11 years, Manhattan for three years, and then on the way back, Baltimore. But we moved from Baltimore to Marshfield, Wisconsin, which... Yeah. was in 1978 and still a town of 18,000, then in a county with more cows than people, with the decline of dairy farms, that's no longer true, but it's still a, ta a town of 18,000, literally in the middle of nowhere. In fact, I got the same question from a friend in New York and a friend in Baltimore, said, we're moving to a town of 18,000 in Wisconsin, what's it a suburb of? I said, no, no, you don't understand. <laughs> it's, it's two and a half miles from Madison, three and a half from Minneapolis. It's yeah. not a suburb of anything. But I would tease, and I, this was affectionately, it was a little town with no social obligations and, frankly, no social opportunities of the sort that you have here in Montreal or Baltimore or New York or even a, a city like Rochester, Minnesota, which is 110 or 120,000. There are many things you can do in that city. In Marshfield, Wisconsin, we relied upon our network of friends. I was in a structured group practice, so the day for the clinic ended at 5 o'clock. If I wasn't on call, I was at home. If I was at home, I was in the basement, fussing with my books or doing medical history. And so I had a tremendous advantage, because if somebody wanted to use the McGill Library, and look at the Bulletin of the History of Medicine, which was the premier U.S. publication in medical history. And they've gone, just as you suggested, they've gotten an index, they've found an article that sounds promising, they read it, it's not that promising, but footnote 7 takes them to a different medical history journal of you know, such and such. Well, I have complete runs of all the English, medical, English language medical history journals from volume 1 to the present. In fact, I'm one of, I think, 77 hard copy subscribers of the Journal of History and Medicine and Allies as I insist at the moment because everybody gets it electronically except 77 people on the planet. But that used to give me a tremendous advantage because I could walk 10 or 15 feet to get this journal. And then if, if the reference was to a different one, I'd walk three feet and get that one. But it's all an outgrowth of the bibliomania. That's yeah. all, it's what it is. Because if I were a medical historian, I would never have done that. I couldn't have rationalized it. Well, you also talk about the fact that you didn't have many, uh, you had just friends, you didn't have any opportunities for right. interesting social life. But that, that just goes to tell you that if you've got a good library, you, you've got a wonderful social life right there. Yeah. 
No question about it. I mean, it was a wonderful way to spend time, and it was fun. That's probably why you got so much writing done. Too. Oh, no question about it. Yeah, no question about it. Yeah. Because again, it was you did not have to belong to the country club as yeah. a doctor in a town. What do you have to do? You know, if you're in a sort of a, a normal scenario, you have to do this, you have to do that. I didn't have to do any of that. Yeah. There were so many doctors in this town. It was a great big, huge group practice. So we were able to just be ourselves and enjoy life, which was great. So what did you do with your collection? Well, it's an interesting thing. Of course, being a bibliomaniac and acquiring books over many, many decades, people, in fact, ask me and have asked me for decades, what are you going to do with the books? This gets back to a funny story about our daughters. So our older daughter was very outgoing as a little child, and our younger daughter was really quite shy. And I, th she's caught up over, over the years. <laughs> they're, they're both wonderful, wonderful, wonderful children, wonderful yeah. women. But we went out to dinner at a little restaurant that was in a suburb of Marshfield. Now, remind, I remind you, Marshfield was 18,000. <laughs> yeah, the suburb yeah. probably had 500 people. But for a time, it had a really quite a good little restaurant. So we were out for dinner, and I would guess the girls were probably about 11 and 8. And the younger daughter said to me, just I, as I remember, out of the blue, Dad, what's going to happen to your books when you die? And I said, well, that's why we bought the lot next door, Elizabeth. They're going to come in with a bulldozer. They're going to dig a big trench. I'll be in the bottom. We'll put the books on top and cover it up. She said, don't do that. Give them to me and I'll sell them. And I looked at her older sister. I said, Catherine, I don't know what to say. Your sister has dibs on the books. But I think, you know, as I'm having this conversation with you at the moment, I honestly, I wonder if the fact that she lost all her grandparents, boom, 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 it wasn't so out of the blue, people do die. She's got this house full of books. It does seem like this is unusual. What are going to happen to these books? So one of the reasons it became easy for me to give away books is because I'd sold books for so long. So I'd always been buying books some for myself, I would say, you know, again, probably over the course of my life, half of the books I bought were for my collection, half were to sell. So I was always having books pass through my hands. They were coming and going. Starting, uh, and I digressed into the anecdote about our daughter, but people had asked me for decades, you know, what are you going to do with your books? Mm -hmm. And I really didn't come to grips with it until we moved to Rochester, Minnesota in 2000. And the Mayo Clinic is a magical place. I had a wonderful career. I mean, to be so fortunate to start as a pre-med at Johns Hopkins in 1964 and retire 50 years later from the Mayo Clinic, it doesn't get any better than that. And well, I, and these are places that everyone knows about. Yes, and I can assure you, I had no, I couldn't ever conceive of any of the opportunities I've had when I was in high school and decided to try to be a pre-medical student. I mean, I've been so fortunate throughout my entire life. I, I can't imagine. I'm so grateful for the opportunities. But it was clear to me at, at, when I was at Mayo Clinic, this was a place that did value its history. And they had a spectacular library. And in fact, I had made the acquaintance through the American Oestler Society with the librarian at the Mayo Clinic in 1975. He had become librarian of the Mayo Clinic the year I was born, in 1946. He'd actually retired in 1972, but I met him at the American Oster Society meeting in 1975, and I still have inscribed books from him from that period, where he said, fun to meet a fellow bibliophile, you know, and good luck with your life in cardiology and medical history and books at the beginning, where I had no clue how these things would unfold. 
But so I had a 25-year relationship, I might say, with the librarian at, at Bayo, and Michael mm. Holman was the one in 2000 who was there. And so it seemed to me a very natural thing to donate books to Mayo Clinic. Lois thought it was a great idea. Didn't really discuss it with our girls, but I knew they didn't want 30,000 books. Mm. So we basically, between 2010 and 2018, gave Mayo about 15,000 books. And then I always used to say, people would say, what do you collect? And I said, well, I, I collect very narrowly in a sense, because I didn't collect what I sold. I mean, I bought books to sell and I collected. But the medical themes that I collected, I collected William Osler. Mm. In fact, the first Cushing's Life of Osler is one of the first medical-oriented books I ever bought. Mm. I was still in high school, and I was helping out at a local little-town book sale. They had so their, books by him and about him. By and about Osler is a big, huge part of my collection. My specialty, cardiology, and then broadly defined medical cardiology, surgical cardiology, people wouldn't call it that, they'd call it cardiac surgery, but books relating to the heart. And I might mention here in, uh, in Montreal, there was a place called Mansfield Bookmart. And my wife and I, the first time we were in Montreal, before we had children, I went there and they had bought the library of a very famous Canadian, French Canadian, well, he's Montreal, uh, Canadian cardiac surgeon named Pierre Marion. I'm not saying that right, I'm sure. But he was a very prominent cardiac surgeon, and they had his library. So I probably bought 75 or so books. Probably a quarter of them were in French, and I didn't read French. Mm -hmm. But I could tell they were interesting books, so I acquired those from here. So that collect, what do I collect? Osler, uh, Johns Hopkins material, because of my, you know, I owe Hopkins a tremendous amount mm -hmm. in terms of my career. So what do you mean, stuff they published? Well, no, not so much or about, about them or their early authors. John Singer Sargent, the very famous painter, painted an iconic photograph called The Four Doctors. William painted, Osler, painted a, a huge, painting, huge painting, correct, I'm yeah. sorry. It's a huge painting. It was completed in 1906. And of, the, of the four, right? The four doctors, yeah. William Osler, the internist, William Halstead, the surgeon, the one that became addicted to cocaine and subsequently morphine, but still managed to be successful throughout his life, a very introverted, unusual man, but he was the surgeon. Howard Kelly was the gynecologist. William Walsh was the pathologist. So those people, I collected their works. I collected the first faculty, the, the basic scientists that were there at the beginning. And my first book dealt with the history of American physiology. So I collected books related to physiology, especially as it related to the heart. Uh, and then I collected broadly in terms of how art and medicine interfaced, Princeton engravings related to art, and have literally, literally thousands of them. I'm obsessed with medical portraits, engraved medical portraits. Uh, and Portraits of what? Body physicians, parts? no, of doctors, like portraits of people. <laughs> so I have these images of people. And this is another thing. I say history teaches humility. And I deeply believe that. And I'm reminded of it every day that I'm among my books. And certainly when I look at my portraits of physicians. Because when you, you know, when there's an iconic portrait of a doctor, he's usually young and in his prime. He might be mature. He might be in his 50s and 60s. But he's still all dressed up, you know, for these formal portraits in the 19th and 20th centuries and earlier. And so I'll be looking at these portraits and realizing how terrific these people look, but they've been dead 50, 100, 150, 200, 250 years. And so it's just, you're constantly reminded of how, 
how transient, how ephemeral we all are. Mm-hmm. You know, no one, I don't, think, I don't think any of us really likes to reflect on that. But that also gets back to, okay, what are you doing with your books? Well, I've donated a lot of books. I have a lot more to donate in years to come. Sorry, just about the portraits. Yes. These are portraits in books? No, well, some of the early ones would or have been. These are, these these are, are engravings? These or? are engravings that were uh, one of the most interesting examples of this phenomenon. A lot of doctors collected portraits. In fact, when I was in medical school, portraits of other doctors, other doctors that were their mentors. In fact, Osler would have had portraits of his mentors on the wall. William Welsh, the pathologist, there were pictures of him where you see his wall is plastered with photographs. Well, that's the thing about uh, Osler is he thought that, that getting to know these people was a, an important part of his education, but also uh, the progress of medicine, yes. too, uh, sort of following uh, an inspiration as well. yes. So you, did that kind of chime with you at all? Or? Absolutely. No, yeah. there's no question about it. I mean, you've articulated it so well. It, it's sort of the great doctor's phenomenon, and that that approach to the history of medicine has really been uh, challenged by the development of social history, which I have mm-hmm. terrific respect for and admiration for, and many, many friends are world-class social historians that have done phenomenal work in the history of medicine. But for I say 35 or 40 years, there have been tension between the amateur doctor historians and the PhD social historians. But putting that aside, because I think it's very counterproductive, the field's so small, we need to nurture one another, and there's room in this tent, there surely should be, for all these different approaches. But the classic approach that Osler did so much to promote was, and has been called, and, and sort of stereotyped as the great doctor approach. Mm-hmm. But it does. Great men. Great men in that era. And, of course, now we're... we're theory looking... of history. Great exactly. Men, yeah. yeah. I mean, sure. it's, it's very sexist in, ter- in today's yeah. terms. But yeah. in, in that era, it was, it was descriptive. It, was it really exactly. it was absolutely descriptive yeah. because women had no opportunities to get into these fields. So they, they clearly couldn't contribute, with rare exception. Well, in fact, his... He, as you know, he did his own... Much of his own... Bibliography, the bibliography's yes. own collection. Yes. And the front end of that, there's 66 men and one woman. And uh, that one woman is Florence Nightingale. Yes. Interesting. Who was a nurse. Interesting. But anyway, as you, you know, just sort of puts a, an exclamation mark on, on the fact that this was a male, right. that this was a male dominated. Yes. Well, you mentioned his, his bibliography, Bibliotheca Osleriana. It's a great big, thick book. And he worked on it for years. And they had a 70th birthday party for Osler in July of 1919. And in Cushing's two-volume biography of Osler, he quotes a letter that Osler wrote to some person. I can't recall who, and it's not really relevant. But Osler basically said, using some sort of figures from antiquity, and he was great. He'd drop all these names, and of course I don't know any of those names. So he would use some kind of, of ancient description to get across his point but his point basically was he's working on the catalog of his book collection but he feels I'm now wildly paraphrasing that he's in a race against time and he uses this ancient way of describing it but I suddenly realized how much I feel the same way because I'm cataloging all of the books that were never in the book business because they were in my collection so I didn't have the secretary doing that I didn't have time to do it so now I've been spending literally the last five years since I've retired cataloging my collection mm. and there's still thousands of volumes not so much medical now because I've most of the medical ones are gone but 
I, I have this, you know, sense of mortality. I'm healthy, thank God, and have no clue as to one of my inspirational senior friends, a woman whose husband was one of three founders of the American College of Cardiology. I got to know her when I wrote a history of that organization. The last card I got from her, Lois and I got, was a Christmas card, doing fine at 109. (laughs) (laughs) She didn't make it to 110, but that's pretty impressive, not only poetic, but impressive. So in terms of what have I done with the books, we did have a big auction in New York in this spring and March. Uh, I was, just recently? Yes, just, I guess, no, two months ago. Yeah. Literally two months ago, almost to the day. Did you, so did you watch the auction of your books? We sat there. How it did was, that feel? No, again, I think it was, it was eased by the bookseller part of me. So people have asked for years. I've said, well, I, I'll probably donate a lot of the books, and the best books I'll probably send to auction. And so then it got to the point where I donated a lot of the books, and I realized I'd, I'd really better get on with this auction thing if I'm really serious about it. Yeah. So I, I started working with, with two auction houses in particular uh, in New York, and one really clicked in terms of the way it was going to work. So Bonhams had a, a live auction for morning-afternoon session where they had almost 400 lots, and then an online-only auction that lasted for 10 days after the live auction ended. They had probably 350 more lots. And how many books in each lot? Uh, well, some of them would be single books. The, right. the best book, best book, was uh, the first edition of Andreas Vesalius's Anatomy from 1543, and uh, probably the the most unique item was a, a letter signed by William Harvey, the discoverer of the circulation. So those were the really truly unique items. But there would have Where'd been. Where did you s- find those? The Harvey letter, interestingly enough, I got at uh, Christie's in Paris, an auction that was mail order. And I would have submitted a bid in writing, probably faxed it at that point. And the interesting thing was, you know, France is very finicky about what they'll ship out of the country. I buy a huge number. I bought thousands of autographs over the years mm-hmm. and quite a number from, from France. And they always have to come with these certificates, you know, that this prove that these things can leave the country. Well, I sort of bumped into some bureaucracy getting this Harvey letter out. And I, I made the not, point, I said, A, it's written by an Englishman, yeah. B, I can prove that it's actually been in the United States because it's got auction records in the United States from 1960 through <laughs> like the late 60s. Yeah. But so that's where I got that. The, uh, the Vesalius, interestingly enough, was a library duplicate. They had two copies and they kept the copy they already had. This was a copy they got subsequently was donated to them. That, that they opened they it up for bidding. Didn't mark it up or anything. No, fortunately not. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was had the. And this gets back to History Teaches Humility. It had three indications of who'd owned that book since 1543. Wow. It had the original owner. In fact, interestingly enough, Bonhams thought it was going to bring a lot more money than it ultimately did because they think, and it's true, it is absolutely one of the most important association copies of the book in existence because it was purchased literally, I think, two weeks after it was published by a friend of Vesalius, the author. And then, so it's inscribed by the first owner, 1543, Mm -hmm. an inscription from the first owner giving it to someone else in, I think, 1561 or something. So why do you give it away? Well, it turns out a recent publication lists all the known copies of the first and second edition of, edition of Vesalius. The second edition was published in 1555. If you look in the index of this book, Vesalius presented the guy who owned my copy with the second edition. So okay. he has the second edition. Why doesn't he give his first edition 
to someone else. So that's what he did. So it's got his inscription from 1543, his inscription that he's giving it to someone else. Then there's a stamp of somebody in Italy in the 19th century. Then there's the owner who owned it before his son donated it to the institution that I got from. That's it. So again, history teaches humility. That book went through all those generations and it only has three indications of ownership. They wanted to hang on to it. Those yeah, families. I mean, it's so big. I mean, yeah. you're not going to discard it. One mm-hmm. of my real treasures is an extraordinarily rare book by William Harvey that's his second book on the circulation, which is far less known and worth one five hundredth of what the first edition of the discovery of the circulation book has cost. But I got this in a bookstore in England uh, just because the bookseller got a telephone call. It was in his house, and I'd look through all of his stock, and I had a big pile of books I was buying. I'm checking out, and he got a phone call, and it went on and on and on. So I decided, well, I'll just look around again. And so this little tiny book that was the size of a pack of playing cards, but not even as thick, mm. was just sort of tucked in a shelf, and I pulled it out, and it had an erasure on, part, on the publisher's name at the bottom. And the book was published in 1649 in Cambridge, England, 1649. So he finally got off the phone. Good thing he got the phone call or wouldn't have found the book. Mm. I asked him about this erasure. He said, well, that's how you know it's the true first printing. Because the second printings, they closed up the type, you know, they changed that. But the irony is, that book is very rare because it's so little, people wouldn't have saved it. You're not going to throw away this great big folio yeah, atlas yeah. of anatomical drawings that are stunning. It's like I'm, finding a, ch- a, ch- a children's uh, book in good condition. Absolutely. you know, Because the kids read them and yeah. drooled on them and dragged them around, right? Yeah. Yeah. The the book we were just talking about, why didn't it get what you thought it would get? The Vesalius? Vesalius, yeah. You know, I don't know. They certainly did a lot to publicize it. There was a special article in their in-house publication, a glossy thing that goes to thousands and thousands of people, was written up about the book. just bad timing, you think? Well, I don't know. Maybe, maybe, I just don't know. Market isn't soft. It's not soft. I mean, most of the books did quite well. I yeah. was very, very pleased with the results of the auction. And honestly, if I hadn't been told, and here again, I didn't recognize this. Jeremy Norman, the bookseller that stimulated me in 1972 to become a bookseller, came and helped me figure out which books would do well in the auction. He was like, hey, this is important. I said, why? And the, this man that, that owned it, his name was Achilles Gasser, and a German 30 years ago published three volumes about the person that owned my book. And in my collection of portraits, of engraved portraits, I actually had a a mezzotint, which is a type of engraving, portrait of this person. So what I tried to do for this auction was put things together. So I bought the three-volume set of books about the guy that owned it, and I inserted, you know, just laid in, my engraved portrait Mm -hmm. of the first person that owned it. They wrote up this great, it had six pages of stuff. To talk about a good story. Oh, yes. Yeah, the book itself and the association. Absolutely. Well, the guy that bought it, or person, woman, uh, institution, well, they're they're happy. I think they're probably euphoric. They they should be euphoric. I mean, it was one of those things. Some things sold for far more than I would have imagined. This sold for less than I would have imagined. On the other hand, if it hadn't been pointed out to me that such an important copy. Uh, and the other thing, in retrospect, it was rebound probably when the guy whose name was in it, who was a, an anatomist uh, at the Carnegie Institution of Embryology, uh, he had his impression stamp and his book plate in it, and it's bound in an antiphonal leaf, you know, this music, big music that they would hold up in church. And 
Jeremy Norman, the book star, says, oh, this binding is not right. <laughs> and I mean, it isn't. It's not period. Mm-hmm. So in retrospect, it probably would have been a lot smarter to spend three or $4,000 having a really exquisite period right binding mm-hmm. done. And that, quite honestly, might have made some difference. But I'm delighted. With, and again, I'm happy because I want these things to be in hands that appreciate them, yeah. in the hands of collectors or in institutions mm-hmm. that value them. And even if they're inexpensive books, and some were really pretty inexpensive, mm-hmm. but if they found a new home, I'm happy about that. And mm-hmm. I had fun doing the descriptions. Hmm. Uh, There's a question about money. Uh, doctors in the States make really big money. But you don't need really big money to be a book collector. No, no. Uh, I would but in say your case, you, you, ha- you had to spend a lot of money to, to get this great collection, right? Yes, yes, over many, many, many decades. Yeah. Yes, a yeah. lot. Yes, a lot. So and my question then is, first of all, what, what's the best advice you can give a young doctor <clears throat> who may not be in the States, maybe, right. maybe somewhere else who doesn't have huge bucks, but is intrigued by our conversation. Right. Well, let me go back a few decades, though, and I I do want to obviously answer that question. But the really big bucks that went into medical books from doctors were one and two generations ago, before Medicare. Mm. Because when Medicare came in, that sort of changed the, the fee structure of physicians and surgeons in particular, because surgeons made a great deal of money in the States and surgeons were big book collectors, yeah. big supporters of certain institutions. The University of Galveston, where the American Ulcer Society is going to hold its meeting in two years, a man named Truman Blocker was a surgeon who really kick-started their library with enormous amounts of money and also was able to get enormous grants. So there used to be much more money in medicine. You're absolutely right. I mean, physicians are very well paid, although current day physicians in the States graduate with enormous debt, most of them. Now, the international medical graduates... I'm sorry? Elizabeth Warren wants to do Yes, she does. Let's not get into politics. In fact, I will digress momentarily, though. Uh, There's a very dear friend of mine, Jock Murray from Dalhousie in Halifax, and he had me up to give a talk about two and a half years ago and we went out, Jock and Janet Murray, and, and three other couples, and I were there. And they started talking about the state of Canadian politics. And this was in the run-up, you know, of the situation in the United States. I said, don't you understand who's here with you? You think your politics is bad? So I will just put out there, I think we can talk about Trump another time, but what is happening in the United States is frightening. But to go back to, <laughs> now that that's out there, but in any event, to go back to what what can young doctors do? I yeah. will say, though, again, physicians are a privileged, they're privileged in a multitude of ways. Having the privilege of caring for patients is something that is indescribable. I miss it tremendously, that, you know, that human interaction. I really miss it. Do I miss yeah. the bureaucracy and trying to keep up with an unkeepable you know, information? No. But I think that uh, one of the other interesting things you see, now in the United States, a little more than half of the medical students are women. And this it's changes a, the dynamic change. tremendously. Yeah. Yeah. Because when I went into medicine, about 10% of physicians were women. So most of the physicians were men. 
They came home and their wives took care of the kids. Yeah. There wasn't this work-life balance, so they could have hobbies, whatever it was, golfing, book collecting, whatever. Uh, now, half of the physicians are women. Mm-hmm. There is this enormous debt. The international medical graduates come without that debt. They have a significant presence, increasing one, in the United States. So they're not quite as challenged by this massive debt that has implications for how you can spend your resources. But also the work-life balance. So the collecting, the whatever it might be that the men used to do, that women traditionally weren't collectors. Mm. Some certainly are now. You don't think that men have... More men have that gene than women. Very possible, the nature nurture thing. You know, this is interesting, and the uh, hunting, gathering thing. Yeah. Well, I I can't find it quickly, but we were in the archaeological museum here, the spectacular museum, and they have a small display of collectors, and a psychologist published in 2014 in French, and apparently it's a book, but they had in English and French. They had the characteristics of collectors, and this was from a 2014 study, and it commented that the great majority are men, and then they talked about different things. And if I had it here and we didn't have to pause, I would show you this, and you'd say, oh, yes, yeah, so that sounds right to me. But it's interesting. I think another, another comment, when I gave a talk at the University of Chicago about four years ago to senior medical students who were being inducted into a, a national honor society for medical students, I think there were 18 of them, The two of them had PhDs. And you, of course, know what an off-print or a reprint is. It's a separate publication of a journal article. And for 200 years, that was the currency of the realm of scientists and medical scientists, scientists in general, and in other fields as well. I'm most familiar, of course, with medicine. So, and I collected off-prints for 40 years, voraciously, collected every off-print I could possibly get on themes that I was interested in doctors I was interested in. Where did you find those? Oh, uh, well, booksellers used to have a lot of them. Libraries had a lot of them. Libraries often weren't interested in keeping them, so some of the best collections I would buy from libraries over the decades. Uh, And the libraries would rationalize, and true, that, you know, we have the journal runs. So why do we need, you know, 5,000 random articles? They're they're cumbersome to catalog, and, and if it's already cataloged in an article. But the thing that people don't think of is it's the first separate publication so it's like the first printing of a book and it was touched in essentially every instance by the author you know unlike the journal because the author would buy for or you know might get free from the publisher 25 or 50 or maybe in an extreme case 100 copies of this opera so they're rare to begin with they're very ephemeral. That's interesting. Very ephemeral. So I've been passionate about collecting those. And that's the advice you'd give. Well, it's too late because here's the thing. These medical students, these 18 medical students, I ask how many of you know what an off-print or a reprint is? Like four hands went up. In the year 2000 still. Just the turn of this current century. I thought you were going to say it's all online and they don't do them anymore. Well, they don't. That's the reason they don't know about them. They have no need to know about them because they go online. My articles that are published, and I don't plan to publish anything more, but the things I've published in recent years, PDF, you go, boom, PDF, download, print, you've got it. But so why do you need an offering? So what's the advice? The advice. The advice is, first of all, passion. You follow your passion. That's what I'm going to say. You 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 can't manufacture it. If you don't have it, if your passion is for reading, you've got a head start, you know, because you're going to look for things to read. Then figure out what theme. I think my my focus would be on encouraging individuals to collect things they're interested in. 
and we're talking about books, so I'll say within books, what theme? It doesn't have to be one. You can have two or three or five well, or ten they, themes. They come up every, exactly. If you're a collector, they'll come up every month or right. two. Right, exactly. Yeah. But I would say this. I think I, I was a specialist all my life. I deeply believe in specialization in all aspects of society. Mm. I mean, it, the, the loss of integration among specialists is a challenge. You know, how do you have these people crosstalk and communicate? Mm. But I believe if you're a physician, and that's what we're speaking about here, if you're a physician, and if you have any interest in collecting, if you have any interest in collecting books, I would say collect in your specialty. Now, it becomes increasingly challenging because most specialties are 20th century inventions, or certainly since the second half of the 19th century. Osler wanted first to be an ophthalmologist. Well, ophthalmology was an invention based upon the invention of the ophthalmoscope. It was a technology that triggered the invention of a specialty. Osler was attracted to a new specialty. That didn't work out. He didn't get that position. So he wound up being the greatest English-speaking physician, you know, in, in, of a generation and a half in his lifetime and has more influence than anybody of his generation today. Specialization. So if you're interested in gastroenterology, collect books on the stomach, the intestinal tract, physiology of, anatomy of, those sorts of things. Mm. Uh, go deep, in other words. Go deep, I think. I mean, on the other hand, you can only go as deep as your shelves are wide, as your significant other's patience is long, mm -hmm. as your wallet is thick, what have you. You know, any of these cute, cutesy metaphor type things. But I would say, uh, and you don't have to have a lot of books. It's not, I mean, mm -hmm. nine's way over the top. Well, you, but you do, you know, there is this urge to be a bit a completionist. Yeah. To get everything that's yes. important in that yes. book, at, at least, so right. that you've got a good reference library. Right. Well, you know, you've just tapped on something extremely important. A good reference library is critical. Mm -hmm. Critical. And I benefited so much, again, from having these references right at hand. I learned so much from other people that have spent a lifetime mm. studying a specific subject. But if I wanted to understand whether a book is important or not in cardiology, I have this reference collection I can pull down, you know, one after another, after another, after another, trying to find out something about this, this author, yeah. about this theme. Uh, so yes, you've hit the nail on the head. Have a good reference collection. It doesn't necessarily today meaning having a bunch of volumes, but knowing how to find this information. Mm. What are the key references and then can you get them in the library? Are they available online? How do you access them? And but as use, a collector, though, you want the actual you need, physical... Well, yes, I mean, I do. And I think, I think collectors going forward, if you're going to collect books, I don't see how you can collect books yeah. without the object. Yeah. Otherwise, it, it'll have to be called something else. Yeah. You collect information, yeah. right? Yeah. And that's whatever it might be, whatever the format will be in 200 years. But yes, I think for book collectors... But there still are opportunities to get books. Institutions haven't discarded all their books. But if you're in an institution, I would certainly suggest talk to the librarian and say, you know what, I'm really interested in old medical books. And old can be 20th century. Old doesn't have to be 18th century. In fact, again, most of my cardiology collection is 20th century because that's when the specialty really exploded with all the technology and things they could do. Mm -hmm. So I would say go to your institutional librarian and say, you know, I'm really interested in old medical books or in medical books. And if there comes a time where, you know, the institution decides it's going to get rid of things or you get duplicates or somebody calls you and says they have, and this happens all the time, really problematic. I, I almost never wanted to buy books from private 
people because it was invariably the widow who was calling to say her husband's books are here would you come look at them and invariably they were not specialized they tended to be general practitioners or internists so they would have books they used in their practice mm -hmm. they might have the second edition of a common textbook you know sure there might be the odd you know one in 50 books that makes it sort of worth the fun of the hunt but it's really awkward to try to explain to someone the notion it's too old to be clinically, use, clinically useful. It's too new to be collectible. But they were my husband's. You know, I just didn't want to go there. And secondly, I did have a, a medical life I had to lead. Mm -hmm. So I did all this by correspondence. You know, and the secretary took telephone calls. I didn't. So, it was, But I think, again, be pragmatic. If you live in a city like Montreal, if, if there are auctions, I mean, there still might be auctions that would be worth going to if you could find out if there are old books there. Do you think uh, you can get really good deals at auctions? Every once in a while, but it's very time intensive. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, that's the thing. I, I, uh, I've only been probably in my entire life to maybe 15 live mm -hmm. book auctions, and that's because I was in this remote place in Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. and I couldn't, like, go to auctions in New York. Mm -hmm. But other serious medical book collectors have probably been to 100 auctions if they live in New York or might live in other cities where there are a lot of book auctions. But anything, anything very specific? Like a type uh, we talked a lot about medical obviously medical books, but what about the object, the book as object? Are there medical books that are absolutely beautifully made? Well, I would say there are a lot of books that are beautifully illustrated. I think the anatomy and these are books again that at my auction I was amazed. Some of the unbelievable anatomical works didn't sell. There's a book from 1685 by a Dutch anatomist named Beedloo that is stunning. It's a large folio, great big, almost life-size illustrations. And he blended Baroque sort of aesthetics with these anatomical diagrams. And I think the minimum bid was something like $8,000. And it didn't bring that. And I can assure you, I paid more than that for it 30 years ago. And it's a stunning book. So things go hot and cold. There was an auction in New York, the Friedman sale, I think it was 2001. And the prices were unbelievable. It was like, this is incomprehensible. Many of the books sold for five, sometimes 10 times the lower estimate. And it turned out apparently this was a time where someone in the Middle East was literally spending billions of dollars on art and books. But there had to be an underbidder, so somebody was you know, bidding yeah. that stuff up. Yeah. So now I would say in many respects it's probably a great time to buy books if you're actually interested in medical books because, sure, for example, William Beaumont, the, the person that you know, did the experiments on the Alexis St. Martin, I'm going to not think of the name, but he was wounded in the stomach, and Beaumont was a physiologist, a military surgeon, who did experiments on him, and he published a book in 1833. I think that book sold for something like $600 in the auction, and this was the best of four copies I'd ever had in my life. It was in the original binding, which is unusual and such. So there really are bargains to be had. It has to do with what's in fashion, yeah. you know, or what two Time, people want. A lot want. of it is timing. Timing. It's yeah. timing. Yeah. And to, to, again, go in with knowledge, go in with an area that you're interested in, but most of all, go in with knowledge. And then if you're fortunate enough to have the resources, both human in terms of what your life is about, who lives with you and how tolerant they are, or whether they're enthusiastic, encouraging, or, or you know, no, 
you can't have any more. This is not what we're going to do. But it's it's been great fun. It's been wonderful. And I think, frankly, my life would be so different if I hadn't bought those books when I was 14 years old. I can't imagine. I cannot imagine I would have become a medical historian. I can only hope I would have become a physician and enjoyed that life. But it would have been such a different life without the dimension of history and books and, and that unique sort of tripartite existence. And the adrenaline. Yes. You, you sense that, don't you? <laughs> well, yes, and thank you for, uh, for sharing your passion with me this afternoon. It's been great to hear you. Well, Nigel, I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed it. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I've been speaking with Bruce Fye, who's a well-known cardiologist and prolific medical historian and a crazy book collector. <laughs> well put. <laughs> Thanks again. Thank you, Nigel.